0: Morning. The scripture reading today is from John's third letter. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, every one of them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we worship
1: you alone, and we exalt your name alone, but at times it's also appropriate to highlight the work that you've done in a person's life, and this morning we are going to highlight your work in the Apostle John's life. And I just want to begin this morning by giving public thanks to you for what you have done in my life through him. I want to thank you so much for the example that he has set for me by the grace of God and set for all of us by the grace of God. I want to thank you for the writings that he left behind. I want to thank you for your power that preserved them through all these years. Lord, history is just riddled with attempts to destroy the Word of God. I think of the Russians now who tried to shut down all religion in their country and tried to destroy every single Bible, but all that happened was that the Word of God prospered in that land. And so many people have tried to destroy John's writings, but you saw fit to preserve them for us. The Gospel of John, the three letters, the book of Revelation, and I'm so deeply grateful to you for this, Father. It has truly been a light to my, a lamp to my feet and a, a light to my path and I want to give you public thanks for your work in John and in the history of the church and in my life in particular and in the life of this church as we've spent the last four months considering what John had to say in his three letters. Lord, he was such a loving man, such a personable man. He had so many other things to say and yet he longed to see his beloved face to face. And Lord, we know that his heart was simply expressive of your heart, that you long, even this morning, not just to speak to us technically precise or correct words, but you long to see us face to face. You long to interact with us. You long to be with us. You long to hear the praises rising out of our hearts from an authentic place of worship, an authentic place of value, an authentic place of of wonder at who you are. Just as David wrote, "I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. O oh Lord, I know that you long for worship like that to rise from willing hearts, and so I pray that you would use your word this morning to 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 inspire that kind of worship in us, Lord. I give myself to you." As a speaker, we give ourselves to you as listeners and we pray now that you would use your word and your work in the life of John to glorify your great name and to glorify your great grace. In Jesus' name, I ask all these things. Amen. Well, as most of you know, I became a Christian 24 years ago while I was reading 1st John. And so it's not an exaggeration at all to say that the apostle John led me to Christ. There were other people involved in my journey toward Christ, probably three or four, maybe five others who pointed me in the direction of Jesus. But on the night that I got saved, it was me and Jesus and First John sitting in a room, and that's how I got saved. So I I really do feel like John led me to Christ. And because this is so, I've counted it such a great privilege to preach through his letters over this summer. I've waited for years to be able to do this. And it's really been a a very moving time in my own personal study, in my own personal life. And it's been a great privilege to bring messages to you from his writings. And so what I want to do as we close our time out in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John now, is I want to spend some time this morning just reflecting on John the man. I don't so much want to exalt Him as a man because only Jesus Christ deserves to be exalted. Only Jesus deserves to be worshipped. But Jesus Christ does use people to give us living examples of what it looks like to be a disciple, right? Jesus does exalt people to a certain extent in our lives that we might have living models of what it looks like to follow Him. In fact, we saw John do this very thing last week as we looked at Third John you remember in that letter, he wrote to his friend Gaius. And in that letter, he brought up a man named Demetrius. He didn't say much about him, but he brought up Demetrius. And then he said to Gaius, he said, Beloved, imitate not what is evil, but imitate what is good. Imitate the good. And he clearly had Demetrius in mind. He was lifting up Demetrius and saying, Now that's what a disciple looks like. Even the truth testifies to Demetrius. So Im- imitate that. And in that spirit, that's all I want to do today. I want to lift John up, not as an object of worship, but simply as an example for us to follow. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and that's what I'm saying this morning. Let's imitate the Apostle John because he was imitating Jesus Christ. He was in so many ways just an ideal disciple of Christ. And I hope to help us to see that today, and I hope to inspire us more than anything to follow after him. And so I have six specific things that I want to share. First of all, I see in John a submissive spirit. Whenever Jesus Christ called John to obey, John responded. When Jesus spoke, John responded. When Jesus commanded, John obeyed, period and end of story. This was true of him the first time he encountered Christ. It was true of him throughout all of his life. In Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 18, we read the story of how John came to be a follower of Christ. And here's what Matthew writes. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. And those are the words I want to key in on. Immediately... They left the boat and their father, and they followed him. So James and John, by the way, this is the James who wrote the book of James in the Bible. So James and John are brothers, just so that's clear in your mind. They literally left their livelihood. They made their living fishing. It's all they had ever done. It's all they had ever known. In that world, if your father was a fisherman and your grandfather and your great-grandfather were fishermen, well, that's what you were. So this was a, a long, long family line of fishermen. And in the moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they left their whole livelihood. They left their family. They left all their possessions. They left everything that was precious to them. Why? Simply because Jesus Christ looked them eyeball to eyeball and said, follow me. John was a submissive man. When Jesus spoke, he obeyed. Now I suppose that a psychologist could come along and give a number of explanations for why a guy would just drop everything out of nowhere and follow a charismatic leader. And I suppose there may be some, some things of value in those kinds of explanations. But I think when you consider the whole entirety of the life of John, what you have to conclude is that somehow in his heart, even in this first encounter with Jesus, he knew that Jesus was not a normal man. He knew intuitively at least that he was the Christ, that there was something special about him, and his heart responded in submission. When Christ spoke, John obeyed. It's that simple. John had a a very sensitive heart when it came to Christ. I've been thinking lately about, you know, those show horses that get so well trained, and if you pull the reins just slightly to the left, they go to the left, or just slightly to the right, they go to the right. They're extremely responsive horses. And in the same way, John was an extremely responsive man. When Christ even whispered at him, he went to the left or to the right or forward or backward or he stopped. When Christ spoke, John obeyed, period. Now, he was not the only one in this story or certainly in the history of those who followed Christ who was responsive to God like this. But the point is that we have to count John among those who respond when the Master calls. And for this, I admire him very, very, very much. Now, it's important that we not get a picture in our minds of John as some perfect human being because he wasn't. There was one incident in his life that I'm aware of, or at least that's recorded, which clearly falls outside of the bounds of a person who is submissive to Christ. Namely, I have in mind the day when his brother James and he got together and decided to plot to get as much power in the kingdom of Jesus Christ as they possibly could. You probably remember when they came to the Lord and said, Hey Lord, would you do anything for us that we ask? Anything at all? And they did this behind the other apostles' backs. And Jesus said, Well, what is it that you want? And they said, Well, we want one of us to be at your right hand and the other to be at your left. Now let's be clear. What they wanted was power in the kingdom of Jesus. They thought that He was here to establish an earthly kingdom and they wanted to be as close to the throne of Christ as they possibly could. It was a shrewd political move is what that was. A man who makes a tactical move like that does not do so unless his heart is coveting after position and power in this earth. And so it's important that we not get a a, a vision of John as though he had no sin because he was filled with sin. He had a covetous heart that was seeking after power, seeking after position, seeking after all the things that comes with that. And yet, when Jesus heard the, the... the request, what he did was respond by telling all of his disciples, listen, draw close to me. I want all of you to hear me carefully. In the world, the, the, the Gentiles lord it over one another. They seek power over one another. They seek to rule over one another. They want position. They want prestige. They want recognition. They want all that stuff. Not so with you. Not so with you. If you're going to be my follower, then I want you to be servants of all. If you're going to be the greatest, then I want you to even be a slave. And John, on hearing this rebuke, responded to that discipline. And the way I know that is because he never made a dumb move like this again in his life. It's the one thing that God recorded for us to show us that John was not a perfect man. Here's a time when he's not being submissive at all. And yet in the face of sin, he's rebuked and he submits to the rebuke. A man who will submit to rebuke is submissive indeed, and so I admire John greatly for his submission to Christ. Now, how about us? How are we doing with this submission thing? Are we, like John, sensitive to the Master's commands? When Jesus speaks, does it matter to you? Do you listen? And since submission implies that we're listening to Christ, are we drawing near to Christ day by day to even hear what He has to say? Are we? Do we value the advice, the wisdom of Jesus above all other advice? Or are we giving our time to other voices? How much time do you actually give to listening to the voice of the Master? You can never respond to Him if you don't listen to Him. So are you like John? Are you drawing near to Christ? Are you listening to Him? Are you valuing Him? And when you hear the Master's commands, are you sensitive? Do you obey? When He says go left, do you go left? Go right? Do you go right? Well... John was not a perfect man, but he was indeed a submissive man. He knew what it meant to draw near to Christ, to listen to Him, and to submit to His commands. And how I pray that we will emulate Him in this. How I pray that we will look to His example and imitate Him in His submissiveness. Second insight. I see in John a spirit of utter devotion to Christ. There is Andrew Murray, who wrote a book I've been reading lately called Absolute Surrender. John was absolutely surrendered to Christ. Someone had asked Andrew Murray what was the greatest need in the church. He and a couple others sitting at the table, and one of the other guys at the table said, the greatest need of the church is for absolute surrender. If we would surrender to Christ, everything else would fall into place. And that's true. John was a man who was absolutely surrendered to Christ, who was utterly devoted to Him. The reason that John was so submitted to Jesus was because he loved Jesus with all of his heart and he was committed to him. And how do I know that? How do I know that it was love that motivated the heart of John and not just duty or a cry for power or what have you? Well, there are probably a lot of examples in his life that we could give, but I think of that last moment of Jesus' earthly life when he had been led away to trial and was indeed convicted and beat upon a cross and hung to die. The only apostle left standing there with him was John himself. John was the only one that was willing to stay loyal to Jesus Christ through such a tumultuous time at this, as this, even though it was a great threat to him and could have even cost him his life. You have to understand that in the mind of the powers that be, Jesus Christ was a traitor of the state. The Jews considered him this. Some of the Romans probably considered him this. And they killed him for it. If you are personally associated with the traitor of the state, your life is in danger. You're in danger of imprisonment. You're in danger of beating. You're in danger maybe even of death. This is why the rest of the disciples forsook him. This is why Peter denied him. Peter was not so much being disloyal to Jesus as Peter was afraid. Peter was afraid for his life. Thomas, earlier on in the Gospel of John, we read about the time when Jesus really began to talk seriously with the disciples about, listen man, we're going to Jerusalem. We're going there. They all knew what that meant. The powers that be did not like Jesus. They knew that the powers that be wanted Jesus dead, and yet Jesus is saying we're going right into the heart of the lion's dead. And what did Thomas say? Thomas said, well then we might as well just give ourselves up for death now. In the mind of the apostles, they understood that to confront the Pharisees was to risk death. They they understood this really well. This is why all of them forsook Jesus except for one apostle, and that was the apostle John. This decision in John's life unveils for us how deeply committed that John was to Jesus Christ and how willing he was to suffer because of his love for Jesus. He loved this man. Beloved, duty will only take you so far. For some people in some situations, they will die out of the sake of duty, but most of us will not. But when it comes to love, love will suffer all things to maintain connection with the one that it loves, even if it costs its life. And so because John loved Christ so much, he clung to Him in life He was one of the closest apostles to Jesus, I think, because he just loved Him so much. He was probably always as near to Christ as he could be. If you want to find John in heaven, just get as close to Christ as you can. You'll find John there. John clung to Christ in life. John clung to Christ while Christ was dying, even though it risked him his own life. And John will cling to Christ forever and ever. I'm telling you, John was a deeply devoted lover of Jesus Christ. It was not a put on, it was not duty, it had nothing to do with any external things, it was from his heart, this man loved Jesus Christ. So how about us? Do we have a love for Christ like that? This is the Christ who sacrificed His life for us to forgive our sins for all who believe and to escort us into eternal life where we might live with our Father forever and ever and ever he died for us do we cling to him do we love christ like that are we devoted to christ in life and in death in victory and defeat in success and failure in health and sickness are we willing to cling to christ even when devotion to him cost us suffering maybe in our families maybe at work maybe in the world maybe in witnessing maybe in missions whatever it is Are we willing to suffer, not out of the sake of duty or bravery, but simply because we love Christ and we're willing to do nothing else in our lives but cling to Him? John was. John was. I feel pretty certain that there were moments in John's life which God graciously chose not to preserve in the Bible that probably demonstrate moments when he was not perfectly devoted to Christ. And all I'm saying is that I'm sure John was not a perfect man. I'm sure that his devotion was not pure because like all of us, he he was just a sinner. And yet God went out of his way to preserve the fact in big bold letters that John until the very, very, very end of Christ's life and then his own life remained utterly devoted to the Master because he loved him. John's known as the apostle of love and mainly his love was toward Jesus Christ. Number three. As John's life moved on, I see in him the spirit of a servant leader. After the resurrection of Christ, John became what Paul called one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. He, along with James and Peter, were the main leaders of the church in that day and really throughout his life. And he remained faithful to the church until his dying day. He became a very strong, powerful, sought-after, looked-to leader, and yet he always used his power and position to serve the church. He never exalted himself over the church. Rather, he found his joy just like his Lord in laying his life down that she might become holy. He was a leader, no doubt about that. He was a very strong leader. If you read Third John and think about John as a leader, or or actually any of his letters, think about him as a leader, here's a man who had tremendous authority in the life of the early church. And yet somehow he found a way not to let his position and power intoxicate him, and he remained humble before God and his people, and he served them all the way to death. As I mentioned earlier, when John was younger, he devised this plot with his brother to seize power in the kingdom of God. And as I said, Jesus used that occasion to firmly teach them not to approach life that way, but rather to approach life through the the lens of humble servants. He said, if you don't, if you want power, don't fight for it. If you want power, serve one another. Here's exactly what Christ said. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be the first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. So Christ says that the great among us are to be servants, And then he uses a different word just like in English. The greatest, the highest, the first among us is to be a slave of all. This was Jesus' teaching in response to James and John's arrogance. And evidently they both got the message because as I said, along with Peter, the three of them became the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. James and Peter ended up dying, giving their lives because of service to the church. They died the death of martyrs, both of them. Peter, it was said, was crucified upside down on a cross because he didn't consider himself worthy of dying in the manner that his Lord did. So they just turned the cross upside down. That's what church history teaches us. James' church history teaches us was brought to the very pinnacle of the temple and thrown off right in the sight of all of the people as a way of trying to silence him and silence the gospel. It didn't work, but that's what happened. So these two pillars of the church gave their lives in service to Christ. And in service of the church, John, on the other hand, lived to a ripe old age and most likely died of natural causes. We don't know any details about his death, but we're pretty sure that he just died an old man. One thing that we know for certain is that he spent all of his days serving the beloved bride of Jesus Christ, He never turned back from that. I've told you in the last few weeks that probably he spent his dying years at Ephesus in the city that we spent a couple of years thinking about as we worked our way through the the letter to the Ephesians. But wherever he was, the key thing about John is that he used his position and power, which grew and grew and grew as he got older and older and older, to serve the church and to glorify God. He was a leader, to be sure, but he was a servant leader. Oddly enough, as I was thinking about this yesterday, it just really struck me as odd, that by the grace of God, John ended up getting the request that he asked for. He went to Christ and asked him for a great place of prominence in Christ's kingdom, and Christ essentially rebuked him in front of everybody. But at the end of the day, John got what he wanted. He got position and power, but it wasn't in the way that he thought it would happen. And it wasn't the kind of position or the kind of power that he had even the ability to conceive at that time. When John exalted himself before Christ, Christ humbled him in front of everybody. But when John humbled himself before Christ, Christ exalted him, not so that John would be exalted, but so that Christ could use John to exalt himself in the sight of others. God will never exalt a man so that that man could be worshipped. This coming week, some of us are going to a conference, and there will be some big names in the evangelical church up on a stage. I warn you, don't give your heart too much to them. They're just men. They're just people. Do not worship them. However, we must respect them because God has raised raised up certain people, men and women, to inspire the rest of us to worship Him. And this is what God did in the life of John. God had to first humble John's heart, and then oddly enough, He gave John the longing of his heart, which was to have a place of authority. But when John finally got that place of authority, he had the right heart, and so he used it to serve others and not to serve himself. What a beautiful thing. What an absolutely beautiful thing. So, what about us? How are we doing with all this? Not all of us have been granted position in the body of Christ, in the the life of the church. Some of us, like me and Mike and Kevin, have been granted a very low position. Just elders in an everyday small church in somewhere America. A lot of people like us. Very few people are like John. But all of us have been given a measure of influence in other people's lives. All of us have a measure of authority in this world somehow or other. And what I'm thinking now of asking is, how are we conceiving our position? How are we conceiving whatever authority it is that God has given us? Are we seeking to use our position to better ourselves? Or like John, are we laying our lives down and using our position, our power, our possessions, everything that we have for the glory of God in serving others? You have a position in this life. Stay-at-home moms, you have an amazing position in this life. You have more power, more authority than you can possibly imagine. This world depends on your work more than you know. You are, in so many ways, the building block, the fabric of society. God has given you position. How are you using it? How are you conceiving it? All of us, doesn't matter if you're a construction worker or a preacher, God has given you some position. How are you conceiving it? I think John would teach us, just as Jesus taught him, use it for the glory of God and serving other people. Don't try to be great. Exalt the God who is great and let God do with you what He will. Amen? It doesn't matter how great you are, you're going to die someday anyway. But God will never die, and His Word will never die. If you want to live for something eternally worthwhile, live for God. There's nothing else there. And I think that's the joy that John had in his life. I just finished reading through Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes, and I was so struck with the depression of Solomon at the end of his life. Why? Because he walked away from God one small degree at a time. The wisest man in the world became a real fool. Because one small step at a time he thought himself wiser than God and he did not obey the commands of God so that at the end of his life he's just like, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless. It's all just a bunch of wind. This word vanity in in, in our translations literally means wind. Life is just a bunch of wind. It's a vapor. It's like trying to, to catch a breeze. You just can't do it. This is how Solomon was at the end of his life. Not the Apostle John. Apostle John had a very different kind of experience at the end of his life and that was one of great worshipful service because his life was not about himself. He took everything that God had given him and laid it down for the glory of God and the good of others. How I pray that we will emulate him. There's great, great wisdom in this. So John was a submissive man. He was utterly devoted to Christ. He was a servant leader. Number four, I see in John a great spirit of wisdom. John was a very discerning man and he was not afraid to say what he had to say in very plain language, but even as he did that, he was a compassionate man, a hopeful man, and this because he was committed to Jesus and he was well acquainted with Jesus. By the Spirit of Christ, John knew how to balance truth and grace. He knew how to balance a confrontation with mercy and for this ability to balance things that are frankly very hard to balance in life at full speed i admire him very much i want to be like him in this i think probably the best example of what i have in mind here comes from the very passage that saved my life as i was reading first john there were other things that were convicting my heart but when i came to first john chapter 3 god struck my heart so deep and i bowed my life before him and i've been following it ever since so if you'll turn with me to first john 3 want to just read for us verses 4 through 10 make a few comments john writes everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness so he's just trying to define sin here and make it concrete you're breaking the law you're breaking commandments you know that he jesus appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin No one who abides in Him, no one who's clinging to Christ, no one who is in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I went to some length, as we were working our way through John's letters to show just how fatherly and compassionate and loving a man he was, especially with regard to the church and and to his readers. He is constantly addressing his readers as children or little children or beloved because he deeply valued each and every one of them and he had a great fatherly kind of love for them. And so he writes what he writes with great compassion. And yet... This apostle of love, as he's known, is not afraid at all to speak the truth, even when the truth is harsh, when it's difficult to hear. What he says in this particular text is that whoever of us makes a habitual practice of sin, in other words, it's not—it he doesn't have in mind the person who sins and then goes to Christ for mercy and sins and goes for mercy and sins and goes for mercy. I mean, that pretty much describes all of us, right? Even the, the best of us disciples are just sinners looking for mercy from Christ. In chapters 1 and the beginning of 2, John makes very clear that he expects that we're going to sin again and again. So he's not talking about us as never sinning or being failures here. What he's talking about is those people who give themselves to sin and don't really seem to care about it. Who don't seem to have a sense of brokenness about it. Who aren't struggling with it. Who don't hate their sin. Who aren't seeking to be freed from their sin. People who make an habitual habit of sin give ourselves to sin because of one simple thing we don't belong to christ we've never known christ and in fact we are living and are from the devil <laughs> that's strong language isn't it in this politically correct culture of ours isn't it a little harsh to tell people that if you're sinning and continually sinning perpetually sinning without repentance in your life that you were born of the devil that's not exactly pc language beloved and yet, because John was willing to say what was true, on October 26, 1986, this sinner came to Christ. When, John, when I first read those words, I knew that they were true. I knew that I was living for the devil. I knew that I was much more connected with him than I was with God, and that I had no mercy but only wrath from God, unless I repented and believed in Jesus Christ. John, the apostle of love, was willing to speak a very harsh truth. And because of that, my soul, and I'm sure many others throughout history, were saved. His willingness to speak the truth from a heart of love, that's what I'm calling wisdom. The willingness to speak truth from a heart of love is what I'm calling wisdom. Wisdom is not about being able to just spout off some very well-crafted couplets, you know, that make you sound smart with your friends or that make good fortune cookies or whatever. That's not what being wise is about. The life of Solomon shows that a person could be absolutely filled with wise sayings and even the insight that gave birth to those sayings and yet live the life of a perfect fool. He did that. Solomon had incredible wisdom and he lived the life of a fool, at least toward the end of his life. So wisdom is not about simply having insight and the ability to articulate smart-sounding things. Wisdom is about living in the truth. Living in the truth. Not just comprehending it, but living in the truth. Wisdom is about living in love. Not just giving lip service to it, but actually living in love. Love. The wise person knows how to live in truth and love. And I don't know anyone else in the Bible that epitomizes this better than the Apostle John. There may be others that are tied with him or maybe even exceed him. I don't know. But as far as I know, when I look at the Bible, when I think about the right mixture of truth and love, John's the one that comes to my mind. And that's what I call wisdom. A man who knows how to balance truth and love in the ebb and flow of everyday life is a very wise man. And how I seek how I have a passion to imitate Him in this. So, how about you? Are you seeking to understand the truth as God sees it, even if it calls your way of life into question? Are you willing to do that? I'm sure that before John was willing to speak the truth to us, he first had to confront the truth inside of himself. The only kind of man that could write the things John wrote is the kind of man who was willing to humble himself before God and be rebuked by God before he issued a rebuke to other people. So how about us? Are we willing? Are we willing to hear the truth even when it calls us into question? Are we growing in love toward God and toward others so that when we have to speak a harsh word, we do it with the right kind of spirit? Are we willing to say the things that have to be said, but to do it in a way that's, that's still inviting and embracing? and still thinks the best of others, still wants the salvation of the other. That's the that's the heart of speaking truth in love. Well, as I've been saying, I'm sure John was not perfect, and that he stumbled along the way to becoming this kind of man, but he indeed was a very wise man, and I admire and long to imitate him in this. This leads to my final two things, very connected to what I've just been saying. Number five, I see in John a deep love for truth. Now, when I in this point that I just made, I was using the word truth to mean that John was not afraid to call a spade a spade. He was not afraid to tell the truth as it is in the sight of God and as it is in his own viewing, no matter if it made him unpopular, no matter if it caused him suffering, no matter if it caused some people to leave the church, which did happen at certain times, no matter if he had to confront false teachers, whatever. He was willing to say the truth that he saw. In this point... I'm using the word truth to mean facts about God the Father, facts about Jesus Christ, about the Holy Spirit, about salvation, about the church, about the devil, about life, about death. In other words, I'm talking about theological truth here. And what I see in John is that he valued theological insight and he valued theological precision. the the precise truth about things really mattered to John. Theology was not just a hobby for him. He did not simply relegate it to the category of things that are not that important, but if you have time, you're free to do them. For John, theology and the work of theology was absolutely central to a life of love in Jesus Christ. He envisioned theology as an absolutely necessary part of loving Jesus. So much so that he said this, if you cling to true teaching about Christ, then you know Christ over time. If you fail to cling to true teaching about Christ over time, you do not know God the Father and you do not know Jesus Christ. Now that's about as serious a claim about theological truth as I have ever heard. I have spent eight full-time years of my life in school studying with many theologians. I've never heard any of them make that strong of a claim about theology. John says if you don't cling to the truth in the way that God revealed it, you don't even know Jesus Christ. So let's dispense with this idea that theology doesn't matter or that the particulars of what we believe doesn't matter. Let's dispense with the idea that we don't need to give ourselves to understanding the particulars of the re- revelation that's been given to us about Jesus Christ because John says it matters very, very, very much. If you let go of the particulars of truth, you're actually let, letting go of Jesus Christ Himself. Look with me, if you will, please, at Second John now. I want to read just verses 7 through 9 with you. We read this before, but I just want to bring it to our remembrance. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Here's the, here's the thing. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. It's his way of saying you don't know God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Beloved, John knew that Jesus had revealed Himself in particular ways and that the particulars of that revelation really mattered. He is known as the Apostle of love and that's right. He should be known as that. He was probably one of the most loving disciples ever. But first of all, John was the Apostle of truth because he knew that the only way to know Jesus as he is is to know the truth about Jesus. If we don't seek to know truth about Jesus, we cannot love Jesus Christ. Because all we're loving then is our idea of Jesus Christ. As I was praying for the service this morning, I, I started thinking about all of the people in the last months that I have heard use Jesus Christ to justify usually their political positions or their moral agendas, like with homosexuality. Just recently I've heard some pretty loud voices saying on national television, that we have to embrace homosexuals because that's what Jesus would have done. Even though Jesus Christ absolutely condemned all that kind of an activity, and even though it's abhorrent to Him, even though He's clearly revealed to us that those kinds of activities, heterosexual uh, misbehavior as well, it's not only homosexuals, but this kind of activity has brought upon us the wrath of God. This is Jesus' theology. And yet people don't cling to the actual teaching about Christ, they cling to their idea about Christ, and all they're doing then is worshiping a false Christ. The only way to worship Jesus as He is, is to understand Him as He's revealed Himself to be. If I have revealed myself to my daughter Rachel in particular ways, I have reasons for doing that. And that she pay attention to my revelation matters a lot. It really matters. And when Jesus has said, this is who I am, we are not free to push that aside and believe whatever we want about Him. We are not free to do that. And if you do that, you show that you don't actually know Him. That He's not the Lord over you, but you're the Lord over your idea of Him. So for John, truth really mattered. Beloved, right knowledge is the foundation of all true love. I pray we'll never forget that. Right knowledge is the foundation of all true love. Without right knowledge, there cannot be true love, which is why John exalted truth to the place that he did. So how about us? How do we approach truth? How do we think about truth? Do we understand that the only way to know Jesus in that deeper sense, to have communion with Jesus, is to know the revelation about Jesus as well as we can? Maybe sometimes it seems to us like splitting hairs, and maybe every once in a while it is. But most often it's not. The particulars of how Jesus revealed Himself really matter, because that becomes the path to love. So are we seeking to love Him in that way, to know Him in that way? Are we growing in knowledge? Are we exalting the place of truth in the life of the church? And if we answer yes to that question, yes, we are truth seekers, then another question is in my heart, do we understand that the right purpose of knowledge is love. That knowledge is not an end in itself. As Paul said, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you have not love, you are nothing, right? You're nothing. The whole purpose of knowledge is love. So do we get that? As I said a moment ago, it seems to me like John balanced the relationship between truth and love better than anyone else in Christian history. I may not be right about that, but it certainly seems that way to me and how I long to emulate Him in this, how I long to have a proper passion and a right balance between truth and love. Finally, last point, I see in John a spirit of authentic love that was not a put-on, it was not simply duty, it was not something he felt he had to do, it was something that came from deep, deep, deep within his heart. And now I'm talking about his love outward toward the church. Earlier I talked about His love and devotion to Christ. Now I'm talking about His outward love and I see it as a very, very deep and authentic love. We could go to so many places to show this, but if you'll just look at Third John with me. I pointed out to you a couple of weeks ago that John wrote here to his friend Gaius, who was a pastor of a church in another area. Gaius probably came to Christ under John's ministry. And John discipled him and sent him out, or or however that worked. And now Gaius was working as a leader, probably a pastor of a church. And now there's a couple issues that came up. John's writing a letter to Gaius. And in 15 short verses, he calls Gaius beloved four times. Now, as the uses of words go, that's a lot. I study the uses of words every week, all the time. How many times is this word used? How many times is that word used? Four times in 15 verses to one person, that's a lot. That's a lot. Look at verse 1. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. That's a statement coming from deep within a man's heart. Verse 2. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you. Verse 5. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. Verse 11, beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Four times, one word, 15 verses. This word beloved was not a throwaway word for John. In fact, it wasn't a throwaway word for any biblical writer. It is such a significant word that honestly, I feel like it's just on the edge of impossible to actually describe how deep this word is. And I mean that. This word, beloved, is like a portal into an infinitely deep ocean of love flowing from God the Father toward us in Jesus Christ. So let me just try to at least give you a glimpse of what I'm talking about. Some other day, I think I probably will give a sermon to really trying to explain this because I think it's pretty profound. When Jesus was baptized, you remember that as He came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came upon Him and landed on Him in the form of a dove. And at that time, God the Father spoke out audibly and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Do you remember that? Forward a year, maybe two years later, Jesus now takes James, John, and Peter up with Him on a mountain, and right before them in their sight, His body is transfigured so that He turns to be whiter than the whitest whites you've ever seen, and His face is shining as brilliant as the sun. It's what we call the transfiguration. He was transformed from a lowly, earthly body into a glorious, heavenly body right there before James, Peter, and John. And, and while this was happening, an audible voice from God the Father came again and said, This is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God the Father was saying in the hearing of others that all of His affection was directed toward Christ in an infinite measure. God held nothing back from Christ. Since Jesus Christ was... the the deity was pleased, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell inside the body of Jesus Christ... Since He was the perfect representation of the being of God, since Jesus Christ, in fact, is God, the Father loves Him in absolutely infinite measure. When the Father looks at Jesus Christ, He sees absolutely no flaw in Him. And we must understand that God has perfect sight. There's nothing that He does not see anywhere. What can be hidden from God? Answer, nothing. So when he looks at Christ, he sees absolute, utter, infinite perfection. To every degree, to infinite degree. And because of that, he is willing to give all of his love to lavish his entire heart on Christ without holding anything back whatsoever. With us who are sinners, God has held back. With Christ, He holds nothing back. Now, when a sinner comes to Jesus Christ, an amazing thing happens. When we simply believe in Him, His righteousness comes upon us, our sin goes upon Him, His being in essence swallows up our being, not as though we disappear, but as though our sins are evaporated in the brilliant light of His glory and they're gone. And now the Bible says about us these two profound words, small words, but so profound, that we are in Christ. We are in Him. In a spiritual sense, Christ becomes the clothing of our souls. He is the the thing that wraps around us. He, He surrounds us. We are in Him and only in Him. So now when the Father looks upon us, He sees mainly Christ. And because He sees Christ, He's willing to give to us the fullness of His love without holding anything back. When He sees us, He sees plenty of flaws, more than we could ever imagine. But when He sees us in Christ, He sees perfection. And He's willing to pour upon us all of the love that He pours upon Jesus Christ. And then He calls us over and over and over and over again in the New Testament, Beloved, 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 Agapetos in Greek. Same exact word he used about his own son. This is my beloved son. Now he looks to all of us who are in Christ and say, you are my beloved sons and daughters. All of my affection that was for Christ is now for you. Beloved, I promise you that John was well aware of all this teaching. And when he used the word beloved, it was not a throwaway word for him at all. When he used the word beloved, he was trying to express the infinitely profound love of God for the people of God. He lived with a palpable sense of the depth of this love and oh, how he longed to express that love to the church. In Third John, it was to Gaius, but in First and Second John, it was to a broader church. And John longed with all of his heart to help us to grasp the height, the depth, the width, the breadth of the love of God in Christ Jesus. John was all about truth, that's for sure, but he understood that the purpose of truth is love. He knew that truth was like a structure of a house that stands, but the purpose for which it stands is love. He knew like Paul that the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. But like Paul said in that same exact letter, Paul said, but the aim of our instruction is what? It's love. The aim of our instruction, the aim of putting up the structure of truth in the lives of believers is for the sake of love. John understood the primacy of love. He understood the place and the purpose of it. And I respect him for this so much. He never became a theological egghead that loved ideas more than he loved people. He always put the people first and the ideas He used in service of the people. So how about us? Do we have a sincere love for the body of Christ that springs out of an understanding of God's love for the body? Do we understand that the whole purpose of truth is love? And are we growing in love toward one another? We'll be reflecting on these questions more in the second hour, but if you're not able to stay, I put those in your bulletins. I'd really, really encourage you to spend some time today reflecting on these questions. If there's any single thing that I love about John and long to imitate in his life, it's this. It's this balance between truth and love. It's this passion to love that springs forth from a passion for the truth. The way he's able to balance all of that, cling to Christ, cling to the body of Christ, willingness to say what's hard, but do it in a spirit of love. Oh, I just love him about, love this about him. And I pray that all of us will seek to emulate that in him. John, it was said, was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Do you remember hearing this? I think it was in his gospel that that said. And I spent some time yesterday, Friday, actually wondering what that means. Does that mean that he was sort of like Jesus' favorite? I know that for some of you who have multiple children, sometimes in the secrecy of your heart, if you were being honest, there's one of them that you're more drawn to than others. You just sort of click with that child better than other children. And I and I wondered, is that what was going on? Did Jesus just kind of like John better? Did he click with John better? Is that what it meant to say he was the disciple whom Jesus loved? Well, I suppose that that's a possibility. I'll leave that for the Lord to say or not say. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I, I doubt that that's true. I doubt that that's true. Jesus has a profound love for every single one of his children. A profound love. So I think probably what this means is that when Jesus looked at John, He said, ah, that's what I had in mind, what I thought of a disciple. He is the epitome of a follower of me, a lover of me, a lover of truth, a lover of my people. When I conceive what it would look like to be a disciple of Christ, John is very much the picture that I had in my mind. I think that's probably what Jesus meant. When he saw, it's kind of, I was thinking this morning, it's kind of like when God created the universe and he stepped back and said, oh, behold, it's very good. What I've done is very good. And I can see Jesus looking at John, who he had created, and saying, oh, it's very good. Not to exalt John, but to exalt his own work in the life of John. So I think Jesus himself is pointing to John as an example of discipleship and saying, imitate him, imitate him. And so I pray that we would do that. I really hope we get the balance right. I am not trying to exalt a man to a place of worship today. I would never, ever want to do that. But I am saying that Christ does give us flesh and blood examples of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And John is one of the best of them. And we ought to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So I pray that we would long like him to be submissive, that we would long to be utterly devoted to Christ, letting go of all other things that we might have Christ that we might have servant leadership hearts and use our position for the glory of God and the good of others, that we would learn the way of wisdom, that we would have a passion for truth, that we would have a passion for love. Oh, how I pray that these things would characterize glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your work in my life through the Apostle John. 24 years now, Lord, You've been using this pillar to shape my discipleship, and I love You for that. And I pray that you now by your Holy Spirit would come and teach us how to walk as he walked because he was learning to walk as you walked. Lord, ultimately, we don't want to be like John. We want to be like you. But I thank you that you've given us a living earthly example so that we can understand what that means. And I pray now, Father, for insight and mostly I pray for power that each of us could walk out of this room and do the things that you have called us to do. I am certain that in all six of these things you have spoken particular, in particular ways to each one of us and you're calling each one of us to bump up our discipleship in some particular area. Now I pray, Father, that by the power of the Spirit you would cause it to happen. We love you and we give our thanks to you for this. In Jesus' name.